Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. And if this is your first time hearing our show, well, good news. It's a simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped shape who we are. And every educator we have on the show is nominated by you. We want you to be a part of the show, so please do tell us about the educators who've inspired you and the teachers in your community who deserve a spotlight. You can email us with your nominations and your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. And if you've really never heard this show before, you picked a tremendous time to jump in because this episode and our past episode have been celebrating everything that we've done on Teacher's Lounge in 2022. The last episode featured some of our favorite conversations with those educators nominated by our audience from 2022. And on this episode, we just got a quick one sharing some of our favorite stories that we've covered here on Teacher's Lounge, some of which have been submitted by you over at teacherslounge at niu.edu. You've sent in topics and stories, things happening in your school or maybe your child's school that you think more people should know about. So today we're gonna revisit a few of those stories from Teacher's Lounge that stuck out to us this year. Again, just a quick episode to tie you over until the new year. And I promise next week, we'll be back with brand new episodes of Teacher's Lounge. All right, well, the first story of the day was part of a series we did this spring that was about lead water in Northern Illinois, specifically about how citizens in Sycamore, Illinois, filed a class action lawsuit against the city in 2020, claiming that city leaders ignored issues with the water system, leading to high levels of lead in water. And I got to report on testing procedures for lead water in schools. An Illinois Department of Public Health fact sheet doesn't dance around the issue. Quote, there is no safe level of lead. Lead is a poison and even small amounts can interfere with normal body processes and development. And in early 2017, in response to the lead contamination crisis in Flint, Michigan, the Illinois legislature passed a law requiring schools to test their water for lead. All schools and daycares that teach students under six years old and were built before the year 2000 had to test. That's because young children are especially vulnerable to developmental delays from lead contamination. State of Illinois has a major problem with lead. I mean, we were one of the big states that used a lot of lead and built up during that time when lead was out there. That's Melissa Lencheski, a professor at Northern Illinois University who studies environmental microbiology and contaminant hydrology. If a school's water sample exceeded five parts per billion of lead, they were required to send a notice home to parents. Some districts, like DeKalb, tested every school. Of the 13 buildings, 11 had samples over the state-mandated level, forcing them to notify parents. Several, like Huntley Middle School, had dozens of sinks and water fountains over five parts per billion. Other water sources turned up much higher. One elementary school sink had levels over 1,000, nearly 300 times higher than the required parent notification level. So what happens after a school finds elevated lead levels? Tammy Carson is DeKalb School District's Director of Facility and Safety Operations. She helped lead the lead testing a few years ago. And she says they decided to replace fixtures and take water fountains out of service if they were over 15 parts per billion. Anything that was over that level that we did replace, we then retested after that fact. The Environmental Protection Agency recommends schools take action if they have results over 20 parts per billion. And the Illinois Department of Public Health recommended schools create mitigation strategies, but 
didn't require them to do anything else besides contacting parents. I mean, honestly, based on the letter of the law, we're not obligated to do anything else. And that's one thing that I'll I'll say is kind of frustrating is, you know, the requirement to test, we understood, but to not receive guidance on what the expectation is moving forward kind of feels like it, it falls dead. They also started flushing drinking water sources for two minutes every month. Carson says that before the law, they never had to test for lead, and they haven't had to retest since either. We would rather have some clear direction on the expectations so that it doesn't come back and there's an issue found in the future, but it's, it's just not there. Mark Ekstrom is the director of buildings and grounds for the Sycamore School District. Every elementary school had at least a few lead samples over the parent notification level. He says they replaced a few faucets and are working on removing dead-end pipes where water sits and could become a breeding ground for Legionnaires' disease. Any of the drinking water, though, at every building, we put in reverse osmosis in. Even though they're not required to test for lead again, Ekstrom says they should. To make sure, you know, every five to ten years, kind of, hey, is it still at the same levels? Even though we know a lot of our stuff is safer now, but our buildings still are getting older and, you know, a lot of our buildings are from 1950s. Curiously enough, the Sycamore Elementary School with the highest level of lead was the newest building. In fact, they didn't have to test the school at all since it was built after 2000. Now, how is that possible? Matt Anderson is the Sycamore Public Works Director and works with water quality. He says it's because even, quote, lead-free fixtures in newer buildings can contain certain amounts of lead. Water sources at the newer elementary school were over twice the EPA's action level. So it raises the question, why were schools built after 2000 exempt from lead testing if fixtures in those schools can still contain that much lead? Daycare centers and preschools built before 2000 also had to test. The parental notice level was even lower because kids that young are at even higher risk of developmental delays from lead. Data obtained by WNIJ shows 13 of the 14 DCFS licensed facilities in DeKalb and Sycamore had levels high enough to disclose to parents. One preschool, ABC in Sycamore, had lead levels that high in over 70% of the sources they tested. In 2020, the school replaced more than 30 fixtures, had stopped allowing students to use water fountains, and were serving them water from a faucet that tested below two parts per billion until they retested. Unlike school districts, the Department of Child and Family Services required facilities to implement mitigation plans like water treatment or fixture replacement. NIU professor Melissa Lencheski studies contaminant hydrology, and she says the schools should be testing more than just once. But students are more likely to be exposed to lead at home, where they drink more water than in school. She says the solution for schools with elevated lead levels might not be to rip up all of the pipes and replace every fixture. She does say that reverse osmosis filters are very effective and regular flushing helps too. I think the solution really is is to educate parents, but also to have a safe drinking water fountain that you know the kids, this is the only place they can get water, where you know it's got these proper lead filters into it and it's regularly tested. Lancheski says lead in water and paint is a huge infrastructure issue that's endemic in the United States and here in Illinois. And she says it's going to take big investments from cities, states, and the federal government to protect kids from lead poisoning. Okay, and the next story we wanted to share was almost two years ago, Washington, D.C.'s NFL team changed its name. It had been deemed racist by indigenous groups for decades, and many Illinois schools still use those native mascots. And I got to talk to a few schools who may be moving away from them. 
On a spring evening in 2021, the Friday Night Lights are bright in Morris. A massive banner on the school right next to the football stadium reads, Morris Football, Pride, Integrity, Tradition. Right next to the sign, fans pour in through a gate adorned with a cartoon of a native person's face above a name. It's the same as the former name of the Washington Pro Team because it's considered offensive or refer to it as our skins. Cars in the parking lot have stickers with big bold letters saying our skin country. Just before the football game, the Morris marching band takes the field, led by a teenage girl wearing face paint and what's supposed to be a native headdress and garb. The girl's parents are the mayor of Morris and a member of the school board. In January, that school board voted to remove the R-Skins mascot over the course of several years. Ted Trujillo was the only Native person on Morris's recent mascot committee that recommended the action. The Morris resident is a registered member of the Passamaquoddy tribe. He says he's been trying to get the school to change its name since he went there in the 1980s. The committee was tasked with providing the school board a report on whether they should change the nickname. They brought in research from groups like the American Psychological Association about the harm caused by Native mascots. These mascots create a hostile learning environment for Native youth. It instills prejudices. You know, a lot of this is tied into other issues like the high suicide rate. It diminishes self-esteem when a Native youth sees their traditions and customs that they've always held sacred, being mocked and used for nothing but entertainment. The committee dug into the history of the word R-skin. It was used to refer to Native skin color and the scalps of Natives turned in for bounties. They came to the conclusion that the word is a racial slur, and its use should not only be retired at the school, but also that the use of the word is a violation of the student handbook that prohibits derogatory slurs. Even though the board voted to change the mascot by 2025, Trujillo says he's concerned that future board members will reverse the decision. Just 15 minutes from Morris, the Manuka Indians are also considering their native mascot. Julie Dye is a Potawatomi activist and educator. She says when schools have native mascots, it's not just harmful to their students. It spreads to other schools they interact with. Opposing fans at a recent Manuka sports game held up Scalp the R-Skins signs. John Kane, a member of the Mohawk tribe, is a radio host and native educator. He was asked by Minooka to give a presentation to their board's committee and answer questions. For Kane, it's pretty simple. We're not your mascots. The most common defense Kane hears from schools seeking to preserve their mascot is that it's meant to honor natives. It's not just not true because we aren't honored, but the reality is we were never considered you know, as a people when they chose those mascots. They created these images and they recreate the characteristics not because they represent us, because they want those characteristics to represent them. They'll liken you know, football as you know, some sort of battlefield. Kane points out that hundreds of Native tribal nations have passed resolutions opposing Native mascots, and hundreds of schools have chosen to move away from those mascots. One thing that confuses Kane the most is that these are schools, places of education. You would think that a school's responsibility should be to teach fairness and to break down these stereotypical images that are cast on people. But that's not what these schools are doing. They are, they are promoting a stereotype. He says you don't see mascots of other ethnic groups used as Friday night entertainment. Minooka has yet to decide whether they're going to retire the Indian mascot. They did change the name of their school newspaper from Peace Pipe Chatter to Nook News and say they're considering changing the name of their at-risk student program now called Project Indian. 
In 2019, Maine became the first state to ban the use of indigenous mascots. In Illinois, State Representative Maurice West of Rockford introduced legislation that would have required schools to get permission from a tribe within 500 miles to use a native mascot. They also would have had to offer a course on, quote, Native American contributions to society. West says that bill has been sidelined for now in favor of one proposing a Native American curriculum for the state schools. That plan was shelved in committee this spring, but West says this summer he's putting together a working group of advocates, including federally recognized tribe members, to help craft the bill. Our name is from a Native American tribe, so if any state in this union should appreciate and celebrate our Native American brothers and sisters, it should be Illinois. Native educators like Julie Dye and John Kane say more education could be good, but they're skeptical. They hope the curriculum doesn't just glorify or justify the assimilation of Native people or become a way for schools to continue using offensive Native mascots. Next up, this spring we sat down with two students, Devin Snow, who was at the time about ready to graduate high school, and Destiny Hudson, who was going into the eighth grade, is in the eighth grade now. And obviously both have had to learn through the pandemic, but at very different steps in their education journey. So we got to chat with them about what school has really been like for them over the past two years. What are the words that come to your mind when you think of what the last two years have been like for you? I would just say more understanding. I feel like teachers are a lot better at um, communicating with the students now that they have to do everything virtual. I agree. I think that I was going to say challenging. Um, then it was more challenging to like show how you feel and what you're going through through the computer. Wow, if you're in class, you're overwhelmed with something. They can see that. Yeah. And you couldn't really see that online. So. How long were the both of you learning, like at least partially from home, whether it be fully remote or in a hybrid? Pretty much. Mine was up until like the very end of sixth grade. So all the way up to the end of yeah. last year, right? Yeah. And what about you? Mine was from the initial lockdown until or throughout all of last year. And so like when all of this started back in March of 2020, you were in fifth grade. Yeah. And now you're, you're almost going to be <laughs> in eighth grade. I mean, and for you, I have to imagine that it kind of feels like you missed out on a lot of high school, right? Yeah, for sure. I feel like a lot of like the memories I normally would have, like going to prom for the first time, yeah. I missed out on a lot of things. The school definitely tried their best, but it wouldn't, it really wouldn't be the same. And like the actual remote learning that you guys ended up doing, you said that one of the words that described the experience was like challenge. Yeah, and in sixth grade, it was really difficult be because I play the trumpet and so I had to learn my instrument online. Um, and then I wasn't used to having like five different teachers. And so I was adjusting to them giving me work and not mixing it up from different classes. Right. And then having like a deadline and not being able to redo stuff. I think the school made it like easier. There was counselors here to talk to you. They made it known. But I do think it was more difficult than I expected it to be. Did you guys feel like there was enough access to those type of mental health resources if you needed them? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. At the high school, so we had a program that was called SEL lessons. So every Thursday, I believe, um, we would take one period out of the day and just talk about the whole acronym stands for social emotional learning. And so it's just like a lesson on like different like coping mechanisms and that type of thing. Because they, they realized that like being stuck at home for an entire year is not really the best situation to be in and definitely impacts your mental health. 
So they made sure that they were reaching out to us and letting us know that we were understanding that they were there for us. Were there like extracurricular clubs or sports or things like that that you guys either missed out on or were different than it could have been? I know you said you're in trumpet. Yeah. You did trumpet. You st- you just started. Yeah. Uh, like during this full year of COVID, right? Pretty much, yeah. Did you have like in-person concerts or anything? Um, yeah, we did. We had fun a uh, concert online and then record ourselves, and then they kind of all banded it together. Oh, how did that go? It was great. It was really good. Um, we now play it now in person. We play it as a memory looking back, and I think it's really cool to do that. But I think it was really difficult to learn that concert by myself and not knowing how to hold the instrument. Yeah, I can imagine it. <laughs> Are there any parts about your experience learning during the pandemic that you just think that more people should talk about? Or you're like, I don't think that they quite understand what this has been like. I think I'm still stuck on like social. I had this one friend that we spoke to and my friend, she didn't have a phone. Like, so we didn't get to like text or call each other over that. And so it was really weird. I was by myself pretty much. Like I was with my family members, but I didn't really get to have kids my age around me talking to me. And I thought, Then I thought that I was the only one going through these emotions and experiencing all this work piling up and like I didn't really feel good about it. And then when I got to school and kids started talking about it, I realized I wasn't the only one going through it. So I don't think people understand how much um, pressure it put on you and how you have to hold yourself accountable. I'd say the biggest thing that I see people talking about that I don't really agree with is the whole movement to go fully back in person. I really did not like remote learning. That's not my favorite thing at all. But with the whole pandemic going on, I feel like a lot of parents, they didn't really understand the students' views on COVID because at least with a lot of my friends, they were a lot more nervous about like the dangers of COVID, especially when it's like really new. I feel like a lot of parents just skipped past that and like their students' views on it and just push their own views of like seeing their kids like some like struggling in right. the um, in their classes and stuff and then thinking that they need to go in right away like there's the two sides of the story that I don't think will get represented fairly you'll see a lot of parents that had really really strong opinions about that and about masks specifically yeah did you guys find that that was even like really an issue that students really cared about one way or another not really What are some of the positive memories that stick out to you over the last two years of of really cool experiences you've had? I took AP US History last year, Mm -hmm. and so there was a lot of debates that we had. It was a massive debate, just one side or the other, so it was like a group of like 15 people, each working on a side. And for my side, everyone actually made a whole group chat, and they were like working outside of it. I'm friends with all of them now. Next up, we're going to move from K through 12 over to the college level, specifically something going on at a community college. So in the United States, overdose deaths have been at an all-time high. There were more than 100,000 overdose deaths in the United States just from December 2020 to December 2021. And again, I got to report on how a rural community college is trying to break the stigma of addiction in their community. LaSalle County has one of the highest overdose death rates in Illinois. It also has high rates of opioid-related hospitalizations and emergency department visits. But even in the face of those statistics, the opioid crisis is often still described as a secret hidden in plain sight. Illinois Valley Community College's recent One Book, One College project tried to bring that secret out into the light. Jaina Lee Parkatilla is the college's collection, development, and access librarian, and she helped organize this year's One Book Initiative focused on the book Death in Mudlick by Eric Iyer, which illustrates how opioids took over a West Virginia mining community. 
The book was a jumping off point to delve into conversations about how the epidemic started and what it looks like here in Illinois. Lee Parkatilla calls it less of a book club and more of a set of community meetings with students, faculty, and experts. We are an hour away from any other educational institution, so we reach many people in rural areas much more than I thought. You know, you read articles about the opioid epidemic, but what does that mean? It's just words on a page. And when you hear the stories of families, people who were loved and cared for, who have passed, it really takes on another dimension. And IVCC teamed up with local harm reduction and recovery organization Perfectly Flawed. Its founder, Luke Tomshow, was an injection drug user for over 14 years and is now trying to build a safe place for people navigating substance use or a path to recovery. There's so much stigma out there related to substance use, and we've criminalized drug users for so long. We've criminalized human behavior when, in fact, we needed to support the people who were struggling. That perception of people with substance use disorder is why Tamsha says education is so vital. And creating an empathetic environment with IVCC for the community to share their experiences made one book all the more impactful. Lori Brown also joined the college's project. She's the founder of Buddy's Purpose, an overdose awareness group she created after she lost her son to an overdose. IVCC Center for Accessibility and Neurodiversity's Tina Hardy says hearing Lori and Luke inspired other people to talk about their and their families' experiences with addictive behavior. We had um, one of our nursing instructors step forward and tell her story that she said she really hasn't told. I, I thought that was really remarkable of publicly put that out there. But I think it also helps our students in the long run appreciate who we have here and maybe foster closer connections. She said it was a challenge to engage students, especially when they started and events were mostly online, but eventually they had students ask really good questions. It helped that Death in Mudlick's author, Eric Iyer, reached out to Illinois Valley and participated in their analysis of his book. Conversations around death and mud lick led to a discussion about issues like unethical prescribing practices. It hit close to home. In 2018, a LaSalle County physician was sentenced to 12 years in prison for the illegal distribution of opioids. But with a crisis with so many layers, they couldn't cover everything. Tomsha says continuing education is crucial. There's so many racial disparities in, in the war on drugs as well that we didn't even touch on in the book. Or, and then predominantly white communities, you know, we, we might not think it affects us, but it does. This spring, Governor J.B. Pritzker unveiled an overdose action plan to limit opioid overdoses. Tomsha was one of the few people with lived experience on the state's Opioid Overdose Prevention and Recovery Steering Committee that made recommendations for the report. Now he says it's about implementation and more education around issues like the fentanyl-tainted drug supply, harm reduction techniques, and life-saving medications like naloxone. Even though Illinois Valley's One Book, One College project on death in Mudlick is over, Jaina Leapart-Gatilla says the conversations can't stop. It affects more people than you realize. It certainly affects people in my family, and it's not something that I would necessarily want to talk about. But I felt so empowered by the work that we did, and I was really so honored to have the space to to discuss these issues that are affecting people and that they don't have to feel shame about. Tamsha says anyone using substances, seeking support or treatment, can find Perfectly Flawed's text and call line at perfectlyflawed.org. 
And next up, we spent a good amount of time during the last year thinking and talking about school discipline and possible reforms. And at Rockford Public Schools, they say they want to decrease discipline like suspensions and expulsions that exclude students from their school. And some parents say that the district excludes even when they don't have to, leaving a lot of those families shocked and confused. This spring, Rockford Public Schools approved a new student code of conduct. RPS administrators admit that their current system is overly punitive. Rockford schools are consistently in the top five in Illinois for in-school suspensions, out-of-school suspensions, and expulsions. In two of the last three school years, a Rockford school led the state in expulsions. One of those was Kennedy Middle School. But RPS also often uses a different, lesser-known form of exclusion called expulsion in abeyance, or EIA. That's where the district recommends an expulsion after an incident, but the student signs an agreement that sends them to an adaptive learning site for anywhere from a few months to two years. After that, the student may come back to their home school and get the expulsion removed from their record. Jennifer Lawrence is RPS Director of Student Services, and she says that data on EIAs is hard to find. The state doesn't count them. So so when you look at state data for in-school, out-of-school suspensions and expulsions, EIAs don't fall in that category. So, for example, like we've had 83 in one year, 62 in another year expulsions, and we're looking at many more EIAs than that. Lawrence estimates that the district hands out around 250 discipline-related expulsions and abeyance per year. While it doesn't count all EIAs, there is a state metric for, quote, removals to alternative settings in lieu of another disciplinary action. Last year, the top five schools in that category were all RPS. Some parents, like Simone Ariri, say the district sends kids away from their school, their friends and teachers, too much. It happened to her 14-year-old daughter earlier this year. Simone's daughter smoked marijuana on the edge of school grounds and had an adverse reaction and staff needed to call an ambulance. Ariri says she had no other major disciplinary incidents on her record before then, but nevertheless, Guilford High School pursued an expulsion in abeyance. School districts don't have to expel students for incidents involving drugs. Morgan Gallagher is RPS's chief of schools, and he says it's pretty common in the district. A great many of our students that get put out of their homeschools on an EIA, it would be for having a vape on them. Pushing that kid out of school, who is often a student that is on track and doing well in school, to kick them out where we're not owning their education anymore and outsourcing it really doesn't do anything to repair the harm that was done. Illinois school discipline laws and regulations state that removals to alternative schools should be used, quote, only if other appropriate and available behavioral and disciplinary interventions have been exhausted, and if the student's presence poses a safety threat or would disrupt the operation of the school. Ariri says her daughter's incident doesn't come close to meeting that standard, nor did the district provide any of those interventions before jumping to exclusion. They're required to do various reparative strategies, and they don't. What they do do is on the actual, like the referral, they have a section for corrective strategies. Now, all this stuff that they're supposed to do, they, they list it all for the same day. When Ariri questioned administrators, something weird happened. She says the school added more incidents to her daughter's file. Like my daughter was in elementary school, first, second, third grade. Incidents where she was littering on the bus. She didn't keep the aisle clear or something like stuff that I was never notified about. 
Eventually, her daughter was given an EIA agreement and sent to Roosevelt Community Education Center, which is one of three adaptive learning sites RPS can send its students to, also including Summit Academy and the Innovative Learning Center. After everything, Ariri says her daughter has no interest in returning to Guilford. Gallagher at RPS says that Roosevelt is the only adaptive learning site that is actually part of the school district. And he says they're working on sending more students there and fewer to the other sites. When we have our kids at Roosevelt, they are more successful in attendance, more successful in credit attainment, more successful in not having behavior incidents than when we outsource them. He also says RPS is progressive when it comes to EIAs and expulsions because they pay for alternative education when legally they don't have to. Even though the district has a new student code of conduct, Ariri says she's not confident it'll make a difference. She'd like to see the hearing and appeals process for EIAs made more clear for parents trying to advocate for their kids. And she says the only way things will change is if administrators are held accountable. Next up, we always appreciate being able to highlight something that isn't talked about as much in education. And in a lot of conversations about education, students with disabilities get left out. Now this year, Illinois schools that teach sex education are required to follow updated, more inclusive national standards. But some educators say that sex ed has really never been inclusive for students with disabilities. And I got to hear about how educators are trying to make it more equitable for students who are blind or have visual impairments. Sex education is almost always taught visually. Students are given worksheets with diagrams of human anatomy. They watch videos about the reproductive process. None of that helps blind students much at all. Galen Kaberman is a professor emeritus at Northern Illinois University, and he spent decades teaching in the College of Education's Visual Disabilities Training Program. Kaperman is also blind. It is extraordinarily unfair to have only blind youngsters totally ignorant about one of the major aspects of being a human being. Kapperman and NIU visual disabilities professor Stacy Kelly helped author a guidebook for teachers in 2019. And Kelly says they conducted research asking visually impaired adults to reflect on their sex education experiences. They did not have meaningful health education experiences. They had to figure things out on their own or they were misinformed or they misunderstood. There are ways to teach sex education to visually impaired students, but Kaperman says that's where they start getting pushback. That's because these methods include using anatomically correct 3D models. There are tangible models of genitals as well as other health processes like pregnancy. They have special kits to explain birth control and vasectomies too. Their research and other educators say it works, but Kaperman says the resistance educators who teach visually impaired students get is about the genital models. They're supervisors who don't know anything about teaching blind youngsters, forbid them to use these realistic models because we don't know for sure, but we think view this as pornography for the blind. Kaperman says the models are necessary because visually impaired people can't fully interpret complex 3D objects like anatomy through audibly explained videos or tracing their fingers along a raised outline of an image. That's because it's impossible to grasp the perspective of a 3D object from a 2D plane, hence the models. Professor Kelly also says access to health education is crucial because children with disabilities 
are far more likely to be sexually abused than their non-disabled peers. Really what it all boils down to is that knowledge is power, and when our students who are visually impaired don't have access to that knowledge, they are less empowered, unfortunately, to no fault of their own. Teachers of visually impaired students use a resource called the Illinois Instructional Materials Center to share often expensive equipment and materials like accessibility software. Kapperman says he's been urging the Instructional Materials Center to purchase sex education models and kits. Greg Pullman is the senior vice president of public policy at the Chicago Lighthouse, which operates the center. He says they hadn't heard much interest in the models until recently, but that they're effective tools. The center hopes to purchase some kits soon. In Illinois, sex education still isn't totally required, even for sighted kids. But schools that teach comprehensive sex education now have to align their curriculum with national standards. The 2021 law mandating that is SB 818. It was criticized by Illinois Republicans and even some Democrats. They claim it teaches students about certain sex concepts too soon. The new law also says that course materials and instruction have to be accessible to students with disabilities. And for visually impaired students, they also have different, more simple and age-appropriate kits for lower grade levels that include things like ragdolls to teach basic health concepts. The guidebook Kapperman and Kelly put together aligns with those new national standards, too. The bottom line, Kapperman says, is that blind people have sex. It's occurred to him that some people might somehow be uncomfortable with that. Why should blind people have sex? And they're blind. <laughs> As a blind person, I resent that attitude a lot. And he wants to make sure that visually impaired students are just as prepared for it as their sighted peers. Next up is an issue that I think that people really take for granted, which is reading. But, you know, only one out of every three Illinois fourth graders are proficient readers. Believe it or not, that still puts Illinois in the middle of the pack when it comes to reading across the country. And we got to dig into why so many kids are struggling to read and how some advocates want to change things. Reading is not natural. That's one thing David Page says a lot of people just don't understand. He's a literacy professor and director of the Jerry Johns Literacy Clinic at Northern Illinois University. Almost all of us learn to speak naturally. We're exposed to people and, and speech just naturally emerges. However, reading does not naturally emerge. Now, what he's getting at is that there's a scientific process to teaching someone how to read. You can't just plop them in a room full of Dr. Seuss and Charles Dickens books and hope they soak it up. Now, that might be a silly example, but Page says that in many cases, reading curricula have strayed from reading research. And you can see it in test scores. National Association of Education Progress reading scores fell by 3% this year. Three points doesn't sound like much. It is huge. It is a massive, massive drop. It's bad, but he says it's also not new. Reading scores have been bad for a long time. So how do we fix it? How should we teach kids to read then? Page says that it starts with phonics. Phonics lessons teach the relationship between letter combinations and the sounds they make. For example, the word cat has the ka sound from the C and the at sound from the A and T like in hat or bat. Now that might sound simple, but he says it is a critical part of the process. If you can't get to where you can pronounce the words fluently, you never really get much to comprehension. It's very difficult because you're always focusing your attention. Oh, here's another word. How do I say that word? Unfortunately, Page says many schools and educators don't build that phonics foundation strong enough before moving on to other parts of reading like vocabulary knowledge and language structure. 
Pam Riley is an instructional coach at the Plano School District in Kendall County. She and a team of teachers have spent the past few years revamping their reading instruction. And we're in a classroom at Emily G. Johns Elementary School where she's showing me a colorful illustration of what's called Scarborough's Reading Rope. There are eight strands that make up the rope, three at the top and five at the bottom. The top side represents word recognition skills like phonics, and the bottom represents language recognition, which gives context to the words and the story that they're reading them in. 30 years ago, we really focused on phonics and then realized we can't forget about this side of Scarborough's reading rope. And I think the pendulum swing went more this way and not as much on the foundational skills. Now we're swinging back where they're saying we have to have these foundational skills. The pandemic was sort of a reset button for Riley. She researched structured literacy and worked with her elementary school teachers for a year on a new program, relearning how to teach phonics. And it included third grade teachers who weren't used to teaching phonics because they had thought that kids had had it down by then. They met every week over lunch to pour over data And Riley says it's working. We had green across the board for our fall scores for growth. So we are headed in the right direction. David Page calls reading instruction a race from the day a child starts school until the second or third grade. Who decides whether or not a child's a good reader? The child decides that. They make that decision. And if they've decided that they're not a good reader, then it just goes down a very slippery, steep slope that's not good. They might act out to avoid reading in class. It might make them anxious or ashamed. And that's why Paige says resources and support have to be there the minute they step into school. Pam Riley says they're monitoring student progress so they can jump in with that support for whichever strand of the reading rope a child might need help with. But the race is on. And Jessica Handy wants to make sure people realize just what's at stake if we fail students. She's the policy director at Stand for Children, an educational equity group that advocates for education policy. If a student in third grade is unable to read proficiently, they're four times more likely to drop out of high school. And if they're low income, that number goes up to six times. And she says there are schools of every size and demographic that aren't teaching reading well. But in a wealthy district, parents can pay for tutors if their child is struggling to read. It is inexcusable that a kid's ability to learn how to read is based on whether their parents can afford that or not. She's been working on the Right to Read Act, originally introduced in the Illinois legislature this spring, but currently being rewritten with an aim towards reintroducing it next year. It could include non-mandatory training modules for teachers and teacher candidates about evidence-based literacy, tools if districts want to evaluate how well their curriculum works, and short-term grants for schools that want to start a new program but can't afford it. Handy says that Mississippi is the clearest case study for why statewide literacy policy matters. They went from being, you know, 49th or 50th in reading to now they're middle of the road with us. They're actually a little bit higher than us. But there are other states where comprehensive literacy policies didn't get those kind of results. And Handy says that's why they're trying to take time and include as many stakeholders as they can to implement it correctly. Back in Plano, along with evidence-based methods, They're trying to promote a genuine love of reading throughout the school. Every staff member in the building displays their favorite childhood book. 
Riley and the fourth grade teachers even dressed up as the main characters from their book for Halloween this year. She donned red pajamas and a scarf for her miraculous journey of Edward Tulane costume. And you can even find a customized book vending machine in the hallway where students can earn tokens and cash them in for more books. It's kind of fun, maybe even a little bit silly, but they'll tell you that anything that gets kids reading and excited to read is well worth it. All right, well, the last story of the day, we wanted to make sure we ended it off on some students. I'm always really excited when a story gets to take me directly into a classroom. Some science teachers are ditching long lectures in favor of hands-on experiments and classroom conversation. The method is called modeling. And I got to spend the day in a chemistry modeling class to learn how it works. Okay, so we're plugging in the blow dryer, not something that you see all the time in a chemistry class. North Boone High School sophomore Noel is blowing hot air onto a blue balloon. The balloon says happy birthday if you're curious. The hot particles are hitting the balloon and then the particles inside the balloon are going to start moving around quicker because of that. And then after a little while here, they'll move faster and faster and it expanded. That's how this class and all modeling classes work. Her teacher, Zena McFadden, doesn't stand at the front of class and lecture for an hour while students scribble notes with their heads down. They introduce a topic. Right now, this class is in a unit about gas laws and atmospheric pressure, but there will be no textbook definitions today. McFadden wants them to discover the material on their own. And as always, they jump right into a lab. And today, so do I. All right, do you need me to suit up? Do you need me to goggle and, and apron up? Typically, students experiment for three or four days, working in small groups on each lab activity. One of the other labs today involves a little marshmallow in a syringe. And the marshmallow also has a tiny smiley face drawn on it. We started at 15, it's like at a normal size. And then when we shrink it down to 15, the marshmallow shrivels up. But why? They think that the pressure is forcing air particles out of the marshmallow. But what is pressure? And what even are particles? These are basic questions McFadden wants her students to learn and know through experiments. There's even a banned word sign. You're starting out with nothing. That We see this is where it starts. Words we use but can't yet explain, and we're not allowed to use them <laughs> until they can figure them out. So one of the first experiments of the year is simply so they can prove particles exist. All it takes is a can of Febreze. I spray some particles. They raise their hand when they smell them. Now that they've got that established, they can move forward. But there's another component to modeling, one that's just as important as the experiments. It's called whiteboarding. Once students finish their experiments, they draw their findings on a large dry erase board. Then they gather around with their classmates and present their explanations. The rest of the class asks questions, and together, they decide what conclusions they can draw. One class watched a video of a gas tanker that violently collapsed on itself. Now they're drawing and discussing their ideas on why that could have happened. I feel as if they had it backwards because if you look at it, there's not that many particles. Together, so right as the bell rings, they put together that air particles and pressure from the outside of the tanker must have been a reason why it imploded and not exploded. As they say in the class after each unit, this is the story so far. They reach their conclusion together, and the models they build will change as they learn new information and new vocabulary. Noelle, a sophomore, says modeling took a minute to get used to, but now she likes it a lot. After people got out of their comfort zones, I find it easier because you're not zoning out as much, and you're not hearing from the same person, so you're getting different perspectives. 
Phil Colcasey says that creating a comfortable atmosphere in your class is essential for modelers. He's a chemistry teacher at Wheaton Warrenville South, and he helps put on modeling workshops where they teach modeling to educators from around the world. In a normal class, kids feel pressure, much like that little marshmallow in the syringe, to only raise their hand and present ideas when they are absolutely sure they're right. Modeling wants them to take risks and be more vulnerable to learn as a group. I see my kids thinking more and asking questions more. And even though teachers like McFadden and Colcasey aren't lecturing all the time and feeding them answers, they're still guiding their students through each lesson. That's where the skill of modeling comes in is the kids really aren't on their own. We're pushing them through teacher questions to get them to the concept we want them to learn by knowing what's coming for, what's coming next. And modeling educators say that students engage and retain information better through modeling than in traditional instruction. Two of McFadden's old students even drop by the classroom and pick up right where they left off the year before on a lab about how Yeti thermoses work. We're moving and that's why it stays the same temperature. McFadden has only been modeling for a few years, but she says that the move has been liberating. And she loves that it's not a competition, it's collaboration, a skill that'll help them no matter what career they pursue. We got to listen to each other because everybody's ideas are important and and you you can't learn it without listening to somebody else. As they say in McFadden's class, this is the story so far. All right, that was all we had for you. Again, thank you so much to everyone that has listened to Teachers Lounge in 2022. I hope that you've gotten something out of one of the stories or one of the conversations with the educators we've had on this show over the past years. And again, as always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show or send us your story ideas. You can do that at teacherslounge at niu.edu. Wherever here in the podcast, please do subscribe, leave us a rating, share it with a friend who you think might like it. It's really the best way to get even more perspectives and even more story ideas to make the show even better. You can subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter over at WNIJ.org. A big, hearty thank you again to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the awesome music you hear each and every episode. I've been your host, Peter Medlin. Thanks so much to everyone that's listened to Teacher's Lounge in 2022. And we'll be back next week in 2023 with more of the show. See ya.